Hello. The Ukraine Quarterly reflects on the parallels and the resonances between the epic conflicts of the 1792 to 1815 period in Eastern Europe and beyond uh, and contemporary military developments in Eastern Europe in 2022. Now, listeners to the start of episode 21 of the main podcast, The Napoleonic Quarterly, will have heard Charles and Alex and I agree that we ought to do a one-off episode thinking through some of those issues. And um, while I made very clear that I don't want to do a military blow-by-blow real-time Ukraine quarterly for the duration of that conflict. I can't um, can't really think of a better title for this uh, bonus episode. Well, it may turn into a bonus mini-series that's updated every few months or so. Let's see how we get on with this first one after all. Anyway, the intention here is to produce something which is just as listenable to in the late 2020s as it is in the early 2020s. This is all about context. It's about explanation although clearly we don't yet know how things are going to play out. Well, in any case, as always, I'm delighted to be joined by our professorial panellists, Professor Emeritus Charles Esdale of the University of Liverpool and Professor Alexander Mikabridze of Louisiana State University, Shreveport. And um, uh, here we are then. So we're freed of our usual shackles of the usual um, uh, structures of the Napoleonic Quarterly. Here's our chance Charles and Alex, to to dig into this in a little more detail. And I I thought we might start by just asking both of you for some uh, initial views once again. Alex, at the start of episode 21, you were explaining your own sort of personal links to to this story and this this grand swathe of of history. Um, I just wondered if you might say a little bit more about, you know, you you talked about the links between the Georgians, the Moldovans, for example, and and the Ukrainians in terms of a shared um, fate, uh, essentially, that what happens to one of those countries affects the others. But maybe listeners aren't entirely familiar with with your background. I wondered if you could say something about um, uh, about that. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. Um and I, I think I should stay <laughs> stage from the beginning that um, I'm not an unbiased observer, <laughs> right? Historians <laughs> usually want to have some kind of uh, objectivity, at least a claim of it. Um, I'm first to admit that when it comes to the situation um, in Ukraine, in Georgia, uh, broadly in, in post-Soviet period, I'm not an unbiased observer, which is one of the reasons why um, I try not to mendle with any historical narratives post-45. Um, it, it's always very immediate. My family is intertwined to with so many of these events, and it's hard to put that space between you and, and, and history. It's much easier to write about Napoleon. <laughs> um, my family, um, I was born and raised in a small town in, um, in what is today northern Kazakhstan, um, not far from Ural Mountains, it's a city that was uh, part of the um, Russian Civil War. There was a major battle taking place there in 1919, but later on, it, it really grew uh, when World War II began and the Soviet evacuation of industry from Ukraine uh, one of the uh, several, uh, actually two factories, uh, ended up in that town in the middle of nowhere. And then in the post-war period, a lot of German prisoners of war ended up there. So I grew up in this industrial slash uh, prisoner of war place. Uh, I remember the uh, kind of these the stark realization 
of where I was when in 1990, uh, two thirds of my class disappeared when I returned back to school. And I was told that they were all German. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. You know, they, now looking back, uh, I realized that most of my classmates had German names, but as soon as the borders opened, they returned um, to their the land of ancestors. My father um, uh, wanted to be a lawyer. He studied at the university, and, but um, he was critic of the Soviet system. So he was shuffled off to this godforsaken place. And um, he hated it all. <laughs> I remember him listening to radios, uh, radio broadcasts from the United States, from Britain. And he would build this, what I uh, jo jovially called the uh, uh, pillow eagle, uh, like a small fort of pillows. And he would put the radio inside and he would listen with the heads had stuck inside the igloo so that the neighbors couldn't hear. And he would just tell us the broadcast from the West. So I grew up with this notion that the system was evil, even though we couldn't talk about this publicly. No, definitely. I mean, it was great to, we finally met in person recently and I was able to take you and your, uh, your family, your children around the Palace of Westminster. I, what surprised me then was I was talking about democracy being something that needs to be fought for. You know, there was a terrorist incident a few years back. Um, uh, the, there's the bomb damage from the Nazi bombs at the entrance to the House of Commons chamber. Um, and I guess, you know, as you know, the, the talking about your father, this is this is your children's grandfather. The stories you tell your children um, must it must be pretty profound about the journey that that um, I suppose your family's been on, but that we're all on it in a sense. Yeah, um, and not not to be too, maybe to make it too personal, but um, when the Soviet Union was collapsing, my father uh, had me uh, shipped off uh, back to Georgia. He was always, all his life, he wanted to return home. He spent over 43 years in, in exile in that place. And... Um, as the first opportunity, he sent me uh, with the understanding that the rest of the family will come, but unfortunately, they couldn't. And so for six years, well, I was separated from my family. I was in Georgia. My family was still in, in what is today northern Kazakhstan. Um, and of course, the reason for the separation, kind of the ability for them to come, were the wars that were um, instigated by a Russian government, wars in Abkhazia wars in, uh, in what is today uh, South Ossetia, um, although Georgians don't recognize it as such. Um, and of course, conflicts in Chechnya, not to mention the situation in Southern Caucasus broadly with the war between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia. Uh, so growing as, as, a, as a young man, growing in this turbulent political, military, economic situation, as I said, it, it cannot but leave an imprint on you. Um, and even though later on my, my parents came over, I grew up with this understanding, right, that we are, we are fighting an imperial power, that we're, we're seeking independence. And that, that leaves a, a deep imprint on me. So when I talk to my kids, I try to explain. Uh, my, my, my oldest one is learning uh, empires, kind of renaissance, uh, European empires in, in his history classes. And I oftentimes jokingly tell him, well, your father <laughs> has gone through <laughs> the imperial building process myself. <laughs> so this is all alive and, and well. <laughs> 
Well, um, Charles, listening to Alex, the, I mean, the, the British perspective is very different. It's it's somewhat removed. Is you know, is there anything you want to sort of ask Charles about? I mean, you know, you've worked professionally to, and known each other for, for a long time, but it's certainly the first time I've heard Alex talk about this. Well, what, what do you? What, is there anything you would like to ask uh, Alex, Charles? Um, no. It, it, well, <laughs> um, there are many, many things I'd like to ask Alex, but what he's saying comes over sort of loud and clear. Um, my own perspective. Um, well, I grew up um, in. Well, I went to school at least in Southwest London in an area in which there were large numbers of Poles. My childhood, and indeed through to my university years, is peopled with, with enormous numbers of Poles. Um, it, you know, my, my upbringing in many ways was very, very multicultural. Um, and through my friendship with a series of these Polish boys, um, up to inclu- including university, I became increasingly fascinated by Poland, um, became a deep admirer of the Poles, and so consequently um, developed a considerable interest in East European history. I I studied a lot of East European history um, when I was at university. Uh, As it happened, um, you know, my studies took me off in the opposite direction to Spain, but I've always had a strong interest in Eastern Europe. I also, I fear to say, um, I've also always had a strong interest in war as a phenomenon. Um, all of my, my academic studies in, have, in, have essentially centred on war and its impact. Um, and so consequently, when wars happen, they tend to grab my attention and, and I will read around them and so forth. I ought also to say that, that my studies have a very, very strong comparative bent. So, yes, I might be looking at Spain, but I'm, 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 I'm also interested in, say, partisans in, 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 in Prussia in 1807, um, partisans in Russia in 1812 and so forth. So there's a strong comparative bent. Um, and so obviously the Ukraine war breaks out and I'm going to be interested um, I'm also going to have a lot of comparative material at my disposal uh, to bring to bear. But most of all, it seems to me that in just the same way as in the 1930s, the cause of the Spanish Republic was the great issue of the day for many people. The, you know, it was a time to stand up against fascism, um, a time which my 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 parents uh, you know, remembered very well. My my my, my mother um, had had you know she knew people in Southampton who went to fight in the international brigades. My father helped with Basque refugee children when they came to um, Southampton um, in 1937. It seems to me that this is the great cause of our day. Since he came to power in, in 2000, Vladimir Putin has been 
building towards confrontation with the West. It's, it's quite clear that he wants to rebuild the Soviet Union. It's quite clear that he wants to rebuild the Warsaw Pact. I do believe, in consequence, that, you, that the war in Ukraine is a war which belongs to everyone and in which we must all engage. This is what, what's really fascinating is Charles and I, I think, are in terms of background, as, dif- as kind of different as, as it comes. Um, uh, and yet uh, we are confronted by the reality of, of dealing with a state that is uh, kleptocratic uh, of essence and fascist of nature. Um, the, I think there's the problem that we've kind of um, dealt with is with when it comes to Russia is is the willingness of many in, in in the West to close an eye on what was happening actually in Russia and pursue business opportunities, uh, collaborations, cooperations that were very lucrative, and I think that that involves your country. That involves Germany, that involves France, and yes, it involves the United States as well. And, and I think the conflict in Ukraine, in many respects, is um, responsibility of the West. And you know, this is to echo kind of Charles's point that this is a conflict that involves everyone, every one of us. We are um, culpable for what's going on in Ukraine because we've closed an eye on what was happening in that part of the world for way too long. Uh, and I'm especially, especially pointing finger at the Germans, <laughs> uh, who are too cozy, too cozy with the Russians, and that includes Schroeder, who remarkably is still on on the border of Gazprom, and that includes Angela Merkel, um, who had that remarkable send-off, only to see her entire you know, leg- foreign policy legacy being dismantled in front of her. Yeah. Um... To, to our um, um, cast of, um, of what? Uh, responsable. Uh, we should, of course, add the French, who have been very, very keen on um, building a, 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 an independent foreign policy, which too often has, has appeared to mean sucking up to Russia. Um, but we're all culpable in another sense. I remember... Back in 2000, I remember this very, very clearly, when Putin first became president, there was a a BBC reporter doing a a sort of sum up on on his campaign trail. And there was lots of stuff of of Putin driving around in tanks, Putin appearing at air bases, um, getting out of helicopters, Putin appearing on, on, on the bridge of warships like, who knows, the Moskva. And um, acting the hard man, um, projecting, a, projecting an image of power, of virility, of confidence, of toughness. And I remember very distinctly the BBC reporter wrapping up his report by saying, of course, the question is whether all this is for show or whether Putin is rather a new Napoleon. 
Well, we sure as hell got our answer on that one. And um, what makes it... I mean, there's two issues there, I think. First of all, the issue about Napoleon. There are far too many people who have simply deluded themselves with regard to Napoleon in the same way that so many people have deluded themselves with regard to Putin. But secondly, with regard to Putin, the warnings were there right from the beginning. And they were warnings which were actually repeated over and over again, particularly in the period from 2010 onwards. Um, if you take Major General Sir Richard Sheriff, for example, who was Supreme Allied Commander of Europe in oh, 2012-ish, I forget exactly. Back in 2017, he produced a stunning book um, called War with Russia, in which Russia, um, Putin invades one of the Baltic states, I think it's Estonia, um, and details very graphically the enormous problems that the West would have with dealing with such a, with such a challenge because of the massive cuts in, de in defence spending. Then you've got um, Edward Lucas's book, um, The New Cold War, which first came out about 2005 or six, seven maybe. And then, and then um, he reprinted it with the new preface in 2014. And he was pointing out that this was a man who was bent on turning the, turning the clock back and was quite prepared to use military force to do it. And he talked in considerable length about the war in Georgia in 2007, was it? 2008, yeah. Yeah, forgive me. Um, we have literally been fiddling while Rome was burning. We've been cutting our defence forces to a quite ridiculous extent and... If a major military response is required, I am not entirely certain where it's going to come from. So, yes, we are culpable in many, many different ways. Well, it's interesting to see that comparison with Napoleon Bonaparte, which is a good segue to um, the main body of our discussion, I think, which will seek to sort of try to explore those parallels between the periods. And, I mean, we spend so much time on the Napoleonic Quarterly picking a date at the end of each three months and trying to forget the wisdom of hindsight that uh, history has given us. You know, we're trying to instead try to sort of size up a situation as it would have been perceived by those at the time, you know, at that moment. So at the end of March 1794, for example, how was the French Revolution going um, in the weeks preceding New Year's Eve of 1805? How had Europe been transformed by the drama of the fighting there? And at the start of April 1815, the question was, how was Europe's resolve going to stand up? And when we look at the war in Ukraine now, here we are, the war in Europe, unfolding in real time in a way, of course, that simply wasn't possible back um, in our period. I mean, I've just uh, been um, 
enjoyed recording Battle of the Nile stuff with uh, Rachel Blackman Rogers for season four. That's talking about how the cabinet in London was on tenterhooks for weeks afterwards. While well, first the rumours trickled in and uh, before the final confirmation of that absolutely smashing victory. Um, uh, yeah, right now, we, you know, in real time, we're able to follow, um, you know, the precise developments of this military conflict um, very, very closely indeed. But I think, yeah, I, I did want to, to ask you about um, this challenge of contemporaneous reporting. Um, you know, it's something that we can do and discuss right now. Um, and it's something we try and, uh, or you as historians, try and put yourselves you know, uh, into the shoes of how things were on a particular date in our period. So do you think that um, the process of doing this uh, the exercise that we um, do each each quarter, uh, as it were, in terms of the times in 1792 to 1815. Um, uh, d- does the process of following this war kind of uh, prompt any thoughts about the, the, the exercise that ultimately this podcast that we're doing is, is, is uh, exploring in quite a bit of detail? Well, if I can come in on that, if I may. Um, American Alex, you'll remember the exchange on Twitter um, about um, the first news of Russian atrocities. Um, and bodies were being, were being discovered in the streets. Um, some of them appeared to have been tied up, possibly tortured. Um, clearly, something nasty was going on. But I expressed considerable concern about immediately screaming Russian atrocity. Do I, did I believe right from the start that the Russians were capable of such actions? Yes, I did. Absolutely. It appeared to me, however, that it was wiser to obviously report such instances. They had to be reported. You know, they had to be brought into the public domain. But at the same time, to hold fire on the nature of responsibilities, because it seemed to me to fail to do that was to possibly hand, if you like, a propaganda weapon to the Russians. Look, this wasn't us. It was, it was an accident, and they're screaming atrocity at us. We, you can't believe anything they're saying. And I, and I think that it is the... We are constantly confronted every minute of the day with, with new, new reports. And at this level of instantaneity, it's quite impossible to make rational judgments on them. Whereas if we look back at the Battle of the, of the Nile, for example, um, Yes, I can, I can make all sorts of judgments about the, the, the Egyptian adventure, and maybe I'm right, and maybe I'm wrong. But at least my judgments will be based on uh, a corpus of material which has is, which is built up over two centuries. Um, it, it, they'll, they'll be based not on instant reactions on Twitter, at midnight or something, they'll be based on a, on a process of mature reflection over a period of months, if not years. I think that that is the key difference. And in dealing with the Ukraine problem, 
the, the Ukrainian war, this is one of the problems that we face. Yeah, yeah, well, that, that's entirely fair. And actually, you know, when you're living through something, you're right, there is that initial uncertainty. Um, and in a sense, what we're doing with this podcast is we're trying to s- sum up where the situation had got to, but we're still doing so with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, I, I agree. And and I think, again, that's why I'm not that active on Twitter or social media, <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of posting um, on this because, uh, first of all, it's, 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 it's very personal. Uh, I have friends who are fighting in Ukraine. Um, I know how interconnected Georgian future is to, to the success, to the victory of Ukrainian cause. But also because, as, as Charles mentioned, as a historian, I, I, I want to have some space in which to reason, to understand. If nothing else, I want to get more points of information uh, because we oftentimes are acting in, in a certain bubble, right? It's just part of our kind of daily experience, daily life that we are surrounded by information, but that information is not that diverse because we choose um, who, you know, what sources we sign, um, kind of source of information we sign up for. So I deliberately try to um, wait before making any uh, statements or kind of comments, and most crucially, consult a wide, wide variety of um, media sources. As, as painful as it is, I watch Russian TV. I read uh, Russian um, newspapers uh, to understand what their side of the story is. As misguided, as misleading, as propagandized as it may seem it to me, I do want to understand what is the information that uh, my friends in Russia have. Because um, whenever I had an opportunity to, to talk to some of them, I realized the chasm that separates us, um, the chasm that right now is unbridgeable. Uh, but it is the reality of that vacuum, that the bubble that we call, that exists that are completely different. Well, where we've got to now, there are conversations taking place uh, in the UK across the West about the situation in Ukraine. And I suppose it is a consequence of the live nature of, of uh, 21st century war reporting that, that we are all following it very, very closely. And I suppose to, you know, this, this podcast, you know, the great sort of opportunity that I've got here is that is the chance to ask you about perhaps some of the parallels that, that you see as people who, you know, you spend your professional life examining the 1792 to 1815 period and more broadly, of course, but, but particularly that period um, in, uh, in so much detail. So far on the Napoleonic Quarterly, we've heard Adam Zamoyski talk about um, the way in which in Britain, the Polish situation then in, in the early 1790s was was something that, you know, a real cause celebre. It was something that really focused the minds. And um, and I think certainly the most, potentially the most strikingly interesting point that we've made on this podcast so far is that actually it wasn't the French Revolution that was the main event in Europe in 1792. It was Russian aggression and aggrandizement in, in the east of Europe. So, yeah, you know, in a sense, this is a topic we've covered off already, but but 
Let me ask you about the period as a whole, because of course Poland and the future of Poland is going to be a a question that runs all the way through to the Congress of Vienna. Um, What are your reflections now in the light of this uh, this latest war that we find ourselves in the midst of on um, what 1792 to 1815 can teach us uh, about what's playing out today? <laughs> uh, thank you, Charles. Uh, <laughs> uh, Charles is pointing his finger at me, saying <laughs> you should take the lead. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, to, uh, of course, um, the period um, that we are discussing, especially we are getting to it, right, uh, Alex, to um, 18, 1799, 1801 timeframe, that will be that will be um, uh, kind of hitting very close home since uh, the Russian annexation of my homeland, Georgia, takes place exactly at that time. It will, it will be finalized by Alexander in 1801, which is an interesting kind of historic moment because uh, we've, you know, Napoleon oftentimes uh, has been castigated, rightfully so, for um, the French aggrandizement. And, for example, when we talk about the outbreak of Napoleonic Wars, we often highlight that uh, one of the fundamental reasons was the continued French expansion, such as annexation of Piedmont in 1802, right? The uh, continued intervention in neighboring affairs in Switzerland and elsewhere. Uh, of course, Russia was um, doing exactly the same thing. Uh, the Polish partition was already done by 1795. Now, we, we you know, Russian annexation is, is or exp- uh, aggrandizement is moving in different direction, and that would be in Caucasus, where Georgia will be um, enacting direct violation of the commitments that Russia uh, took with the Eastern Jordan kingdoms. Interesting parallel kind of is, is that just like Napoleon detained and exiled Spanish royal family, the Russian government did the same thing to the Georgian royal family. It was detained, exiled, and effectively the Georgian, Eastern Georgian kingdom was um, so to speak, politically decapitated, just like uh, just like Spain was in, in 1808. So there is a lot of parallels, I think, that we can draw between, uh, politically speaking, right? Not necessarily in terms of tactical or operational, but it's a, a larger uh, political uh, events that are taking place at this time. And one of the things is is that when political will in European powers, you know, Western powers, is misaligned or if it's uh, diverted, uh, it is easier for some of uh, these powers to, to embark on aggrandizement. Um, you know, in 1790s, early 1800s, Europe's attention is more focused on situation in France, especially after Napoleon's rise. And the Russian aggrandizement is usually swept under the, under the uh, carpet. We shouldn't forget that uh, it is during this period Russia will acquire not just Poland, but will acquire Finland, will acquire uh, Bessarabia, which is part of what is today Moldova, will acquire Caucasus, Georgia, Armenia, parts of Azerbaijan, uh, and most crucially will retain, right? These are conquests that, unlike France, uh, Russia will retain and and it will emerge and then the greater imperial power in 1815 than it was in 1790. Uh, too, at the start of this revolutionary era. Yeah, I mean, I, I, Alex, I do agree. Um, I would never deny 
that that Russia was an imperial power. In the same way, I wouldn't deny that Britain was an imperial power. I think that the, that is not an issue. Um, I, I know it's always it's often been thrown at me, um, perhaps in a fairly gentle fashion by your good self, Alex. But but sometimes it's been thrown at me in a very in a much more brutal fashion on on Twitter. Um, yes, of course, Britain, Austria. Russia, uh, within its limits, Prussia, of course they were imperialistic powers. Um, the difference is that nobody is holding William Pitt or Alexander I or Frederick William III or Metternich up as a hero. That is, is, is what my issue is. It, is. it is the glorification of a warlord who was bent on conquest. Um, I would object just as much to a glorification of, for the sake of argument, um, Queen Victoria, who, who, who was in, in also, in a sense, a warlord. Um, however, however, that's that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say, I think, is that the Russian claim that Ukraine is historically Russian is bogus. Um, in the mid-18th century, um, and, and American Alex, do please feel free to, to correct me on this. This is why I was handing the, the, the ball to you, in a sense, handing the baton to you, because I'm, you know, I'm not an East European specialist. Um, you know, I'm... I'm Yes, all right, I've done a lot of reading in the past and probably met more than many, many other people. But as all of this is rolling out, I'm just so relieved I'm retired because I've actually got time to, 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 to read up on it all. Um, okay, middle of the 18th century, what is today the Ukraine is split up between, as I understand it, four different powers, uh, yeah, they've actually. I do mean four. Yes, um, the, the north was the the, the the northern fringes, including I think Kiev, um, was controlled by Russia. The, the northeast, um, there was the there was a basically a Cossack state, um, a, a Cossack hetmanate. Um, the the southeast, um, much of the centre and the and and the Crimea. Um, was was controlled by the um, Khanate of the Crimea, and finally the extreme southwest. I mean, basically Odessa and points southwestwards was controlled by the Ottoman Empire. Oh no, there's a fifth one, of course, the 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 uh, Polish Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth controlled controlled the, the, the west around Lviv. Um, so it's not historically Russian. Um, it, all of these territories were acquired by Russia in a series of conquests from 1768 up until the, uh, the middle of the Napoleonic period, basically. Um, so it's important to have this, this background in mind because we are not, well, but basically because it completely contradicts many of the fundamental Russian arguments. Hey, I completely concur. And in, 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 in fact, I will go even kind of further and say that uh, Ukraine um, or Ukrainian people, Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian 
language has been shaped more by Polish than Russian since they spend actually historically kind of looking broadly they spend more time within Polish um, uh, cultural milieu cultural environment than they did with Russia it is only as, as you pointed out uh, Charles it is only um, uh, in 1667, that uh, Russia acquired the left bank of Ukraine, that is Eastern Ukraine, and it will be only in 1793 that in um, 95 uh, that Russia will acquire the right bank of Ukraine, the, the the western part of it. So historically speaking, therefore, uh, the you know the relationship between Russian and Ukrainian, what we kind of using these modern concepts of, of nationhood between these two people is far shorter than the relationship between Ukrainians and the Poles, which is at least twice as long. More than this, uh, in the 19th century, the very sense of Ukrainian uh, nationality is developed, is kind of shaping in response to the Russian colonial rule. Um, the great Ukrainian writers like Taras Shevchenko and Others are writing about the Ukrainian experiences within the Russian rule, and the rule, uh, uh, the one that is designed to eradicate what remarkably Russians today, certainly in the Russian government, were considering the kind of the wrong type quotation mark, the wrong type uh, 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 Russians, right? This Russians speaking, you know, funny language, you know, in 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 relation to Ukrainians, and of course. If we compare, actually, the rhetoric of Putin's government today, you will see a lot of similarities to the rhetoric of uh, Alexander III with his kind of heavy-handed reactionary uh, policies that uh, outlawed Ukrainian language and closed down Ukrainian schools and, and tried to russify a lot of, uh, uh, um, a lot of things in, in Ukraine. So... Um, I absolutely agree with you, uh, Charles, that it is important to be, remember when we talk about this uh, Russian claims to this territory, that this is absolutely not Russian. Today, and, and last point, Alex, before you intervene, today I I was reading the Russian news agency, Ria Novosti, and it has this one <laughs> wonderful, kind of sarcastically wonderful statement by from this uh, Russian uh, foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, that says, Quote, special operation in Ukraine it helps liberate Ukraine from the yoke of the West. And in many respects, it reminded me of the rhetoric that the French used in the, during the Revolutionary Wars when they were also liberating right, uh, the territories from the yoke of the uh, uh, monarchism and reaction. <laughs> Yes, indeed. This uh, very thick volume, Imperial Glory, um, with all of those all of those bulletins, um, uh, certainly sums sums all that up. Uh, Charles, yeah, um, liberation. Um, well, I seem to remember some American general in Vietnam who said that, that um, they 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 had to burn down the village to save it. I mean, that seems to be a fairly obvious comparison. Um, I do think, however, that there are issues that the Ukrainians and indeed those who would seek to speak for them and champion them, in, in, in which I include myself, I do think that there are difficult issues um, 
which need to be confronted. Ukrainian nationalism, um, totally understandable development. Um, you are going to get Ukrainian nationalism in the same way as you're going to get Polish nationalism or indeed German nationalism. You know, it's a 19th century trend. Um, but in and of itself, I don't think that Ukrainian nationalism is a particularly nice phenomenon. Nationalisms, and in particular East European nationalisms, are not nice phenomena. Um, as, as any of my students would, would, would tell you, I, I absolutely castigate nationalism um, for, the, for the damage it causes as it, as it emerges in the 19th century, and indeed the, the damage it causes in the 20th century. Um, so, Ukrainian nationalism was in and of itself, by its very nature, hostile to Poles, hostile to Russians. Um, indeed, I mean, hostile, I suppose, to Tartars. I don't know very much about that. Now, the Ukrainians clearly suffer terribly under the Tsars. There's, there's, there, you know, they're, they're subjected to rustication. They rise in revolt in 1918. Um, they fight against the Bolshevik state. They're fighting for their freedom. Fine. Um, the Bolshevik state wins. There's a brief period of, which I suppose corresponds more or less with the new economic policy of um, Ukrainization, um, a, a brief period of, of toleration, um, a period of, of uh, considerable cultural freedom. Um, but then all of that is swept away in the 1930s. Um, and you have a situation in which Ukraine suffers terribly. Now, there's a huge historical argument here. Um, Ukraine, of course, is gripped by this appalling famine, which is called the Holodomor. Um, the, the po- I think it stands as like poison death or something in, 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 in Ukrainian. Um, essentially, um, you have the, the, the great change. You have collectivization, forced collectivization. Um, and in many parts of the Ukraine, there's considerable resistance to this. And the result is the imposition of very, very heavy-handed repression, uh, very, very ha- heavy-handed forced requisitioning, um, deportation of, of entire villages, and so forth. And the results are terrible famine. And between three and a half and five million people die. Now, the issue is whether that constitutes genocide. Um, there is a big debate about that. Um, were these measures particularly aimed at Ukrainians? Certainly you do see a tendency to hit the, the Ukrainian communist leadership very heavily in the Great Purges. Um, you can certainly see, if you like, uh, intense rustification. Whatever. Ukraine suffers very, very badly in the 1930s. And this is where, of course, becomes a very, very difficult issue and an issue which is at the heart of the Russian presentation of the war today. And that is the extent to which Ukrainian nationalists collaborated with the, with, with the Nazi invasion. There's massive evidence of Ukrainian participation in the Holocaust, 
and the working out of, if you like, domestic anti-Semitism. Um, what I know rather less about is the, is the extent to which there was active collaboration with the Germans against the Soviets. That is an episode which obviously fuels Russian propaganda. We're fighting Nazis. Um, and I believe it's a part of Ukraine's past um, which has to be confronted and um, has to be tackled honestly and openly. Well, it feels to me like the discussion so far tends to, uh, you know, when considering the history of the region, you know, as as is always the case, complicates. And the context is often not as straightforward as some people might editorially like it to be. We've had a couple of questions um, from uh, Twitter, as it happens. Um, Bernie W. Campbell um, said that he often talks to his students about the... Uh, he's a history teacher. He often talks to his students about the historic Russian drive for the seas. And that's an idea that um, they've been revisiting a lot recently. Uh, so he, he says he'd be very interested to see if you folks have thoughts on that. So I wonder if either of you had a view, maybe Alex. Yes, Um you can, you know, in, in hindsight, kind of looking um, back, we see how Russian uh, imperial government was indeed uh, vast, you know, uh, committed to opening up those proverbial windows, as Peter the Great said, um, not just to Europe, which would have, which was accomplished by him by winning the Great Northern War in 1721 and s- securing the Russian foothold in Baltic but also to the um, Near East uh, by establishing presence in the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea. Um, Russia, if we, if we look as emerging as a Moscovite Rus, um, you know, in, in, in early medieval period, um, of course, was a landlocked nation. It is only in later years, in later centuries, that it was able to acquire access to the sea. And that access is fundamental to the survival of, of the state, uh, or to its growth economically, politically, militarily. The conquest of Novgorod, the Great Republic of Novgorod, for example, and of course, it opens up access both to trade, but also to you know the, the interaction with North uh, Eastern uh, Europe, um, just as uh, conquest of Ukraine, which begins in, in earnest in seventeenth century and. Um, uh, causes, uh, 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 you know, kind of shapes up the Russian policy um, vis-a-vis the Ottoman Empire for in, and for the generations to come. So yes, I, I use that concept as well. Um, I think if it kind of connecting it to the modern reality, it, it's not that Russia uh, is driving, um, you know, this, the, you know, it has a you know, new policy of, of seeking the access to seas again because it it, it has plenty of it. But I think to me, the problem is more of the Russian government's inability to accept the existence of the territories as a sovereign state, the territories that it owned as a colonies. I've served in the Georgian foreign ministry in the 90s. And I remember that time and again, when confronted kind of with uh, negotiations with Russians, there was always this snickering, condescending attitude that you guys uh, can't really aspire to be uh, it's sovereign independent because you're a little nation, you're a little 
country that is destined to be a, a pawn in, 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 in the hands of the great powers. And I think this is what is more at stake here. It's the, the differing uh, visions of what the agency of the people constitute. If Ukraine decides at the expression of its people's will to pursue a Western course, to pursue a close integration with the European Union, and yes, pursue integration with NATO, does Russia have the ground, you know, the justification to tell Ukraine you can't do that? From the Russian point of view, clearly, they, they assert that. But uh, is that, is, does the might make the right? This issue about the Russian drive to seize Russian expansionism. Yes, all right. Well, if, 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 if Russia takes over the Ukraine, she'll have the whole of the Black Sea coast, she'll have the whole of the Sea of Azov. But I think that there's a, a much broader issue which is about what Russia has always seen as its need for protection. Russia was a country which had been invaded on many occasions, um, or at least threatened from the outside. I mean, one, one thinks of the Mongols, for example. Um, later on, one thinks of, of Charles XII of Sweden, who, who led his army deep into Russia and ended up being defeated at Poltava in Ukraine. Um, this is in the, the Great Northern War. Um, the Swedish invasion of 1712. Already then, by the beginning of the 19th century, you had a tendency to say, what do we need to do? We need to establish buffer territories. Um, we need to push outwards. We need to take places like Finland. We need to take places like Poland. We need to take places like... Um, what becomes Romania, the Danubian provinces, as it was called. Um, we need to take Georgia. Um, it's about security. It's, 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 there is, at the heart of, of, of the Russian official mindset, I think, there is this deep, deep insecurity that the rest of the world is against them. The, the rest of the world is going to pounce on them. And the way in which you forestall this is by building up buffer territories. And of course, Napoleon jumps on them in 1812. And so you know, this reinforces the, 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 the tendency. So it's not just a drive to the seas. It's, it's a drive to establish security and indeed control of warm water ports like Sevastopol, like Odessa, is a part of Russian security because places like Murmansk and Arkhangelsk uh, are I stuck for two thirds of the year, and a long way from anywhere? I, I think I will. So, um, I, I agree with Charles with you on, on the notion of, of national security, um, but not maybe um, on on the point of Russia being threatened um, as such. Um, because again, even in Charles XII's kind of invasion. Even though it is part of the Great Northern War, the fighting is actually taking place in the Polish-Lithuanian lands. Poltava is still in Polish-Lithuania rather than it is in, in Russia, right? Um, because it will be acquired later on. So I, national security plays a role, but I, don't, I just find it hard, just like today, Putin's argument or so Lavrov's argument that if we didn't invade Ukraine, NATO would have uh, you know, threatened us. No one seriously threatened Russia in 18th century uh, it, because Russia was already an imperial power, hard to grapple with. Yeah. Alex, Alex, don't get me wrong. 
Um, I'm not saying that this perception is is you know, makes any sense whatsoever. Um, it, today, in, in, you know, in, 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 in our time, it makes no sense whatsoever. You know, everything that Putin is saying, everything that Lavrov is saying, is rubbish. Period. Full stop. End of story. However, you can understand why Alexander the First felt threatened in the wake of Napoleon. Um, well, and, and it, but it's, 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 it doesn't really matter if if the threat is real or not. As I kept, as I used to keep telling my students, it the reality doesn't matter. What matters is the perception of reality. Do you see what I mean? Oh, I, I use actually the same uh, same sentence in full with my students. So <laughs> I, I talk about perceptions mattering than facts. So, um, so, 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 yeah. so don't get don't get don't get me wrong. Um, you know, Putin cannot use this as 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 even a crutch, let alone a leg to stand on. Speaking of uh, Congress of Vienna, right, and <laughs> making decisions for all the little people uh, of, of Europe. Um, I think that's where exactly uh, Putin would like to be. In fact, all his rhetoric for the past two decades spoke about spheres of influence. It spoke, it, its rhetoric is very 19th century geopolitical, uh, in effect, ignoring the developments of international law for the past 150 years or so. Yes, if if... If given an opportunity, Russia would like to have a, a, a Congress of great powers that will say, this is your sphere, this is my sphere, and, and let's draw the, uh, the borders like this. And certainly Georgia, Ukraine, and maybe other parts uh, of Eastern Europe will uh, be part of what Russia uh, feels is their sphere uh, uh, of influence. But we are not in the 19th century. right? We are not in 1815. And that's that's the thing that uh, uh, needs to be emphasized repeatedly with re- with regards to Russian uh, uh, government that we live in the 21st century. We live in a, in, in in era where for uh, um, where people have an agency, that people make the decision. They can aspire to something different and better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Several times over these past couple of months, I've heard people saying, it's all NATO's fault. If if, if NATO hadn't pushed its frontiers so far to the east, if NATO hadn't, you know, gone for getting all of these new members, Russia Russia wouldn't be so upset. Um, uh, Sorry, um, you know, what about as Alex puts it, the agency of the people. These, sta- the, 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 these nations, in many instances, very, very strongly, and I'm thinking about the Baltic peoples here, wanted to join NATO because of their experience of Russian imperialism and Russian aggression and Russian brutality. There's no two ways about it. And to have excluded them would have been absolutely to compound the 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 geostrategic and military nonsenses of the past twenty odd years. Um, 
Russia has got to accept that these states have in each and every case, whether we're talking about Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, Ukraine, Georgia, they have a uniformly negative experience of rule from Russia. It's been a historical catastrophe for them. Um, and, and they want out. And that doesn't mean to say that Russia is under threat. Nobody is talking about marching on Moscow. And if anybody is talking about marching on Moscow, I will have things to say about it. I, I, I completely agree with you, Charles, um, especially uh, on this issue of NATO expansion as being a cause. Um, people have to have to remember that even before NATO began this Eastern March in 97, Russia was already meddling in the affairs of neighboring countries. It was already fostering and promoting conflicts in neighboring countries. Look at Moldova. Moldova has neutrality enshrined in its laws. What did Moldova got in, in, in return? It got an internal strife promoted, supported, sustained by Russian government for the past 30 years. Just recently, last week, you've probably seen the escalation of tensions in Transnistria, which Russian, uh, Russians uh, uh, grabbed from Moldova. So anyone who thinks that if Ukraine has just adopted neutrality and kind of given up on its Western aspirations would have been, everything would have been cuddly and fuzzy and nice and Russians would have just stood there and watched, uh, watched it all happen. No, it, that just simply means that you haven't experienced what it, what it means to live in Eastern Europe on the borders of Russia. There is a reason, as you pointed out, Charles, that uh, Ukraine has a massive issues with Russia today and Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania don't. And the answer is, NATO. They have the NATO umbrella protecting them. Ukraine doesn't. And that's the massive historic mistake that NATO made in 2008. If NATO had extended associate membership, if not full membership, at the Bucharest summit to Ukraine and Georgia, there would have been no Russo-Georgian war in 2008, just as there would have been no Crimean annexation in 2014 or the full-blown war in 2022. Uh, what I'd like to ask you about is the current situation in the Ukraine and whether there are any lessons for for the current commanders um, from the warfare of 1792 to 1815. You know, as we think about the immediate ways forward, here we are recording this at the beginning of May 2022, thinking about war aims, how you end a war. Is there anything that is of relevance from 1792 to 1815 that, that either of you might pick out? Charles, do you have any anything that you might pick out? Well, Field Marshal Montgomery um, once said that the first rule of warfare was not to march on Moscow. And I think that that should be pinned up in gold letters on the wall of every single Western statesman right now that we might not like it. I don't like it, but we are going to be stuck with Vladimir Putin. We simply do not have the military force to invade Russia and engage in wholesale regime change as if it was Germany in 1945. 
jokingly, I have in the past talk, talked about this sort of splendid fellow called James Bond. Well, if we could send James Bond in and have him bump off Putin, which would be a completely wrong and immoral thing to do, but let us say it, it was practically possible, we would not know what we would be getting in his place. It could be, it could be even worse. So I think that the, the first thing to say is that we look at 1812 and we say, we don't do that, do we? We need to have much more practical, much more limited goals, which we can actually achieve. And unfortunately, that might mean um, giving Putin something. Um, I, the words stick in my throat. And if you are frowning at me, Alex, yes, please do frown. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like it any more than anybody else. But it may well, be that the most practical way forward and the, the, the step, if you like, the aim, which is most within our grasp, is rolling Putin back to the, 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 the frontiers, if you like, of the 1st of January 2022, accepting that he has what he had, at what you know, the, the, the chunks of Luhansk and Donetsk, which were, had already fallen, accepting he has the Crimea. But offering Ukraine instant, and indeed Georgia, and indeed Moldova, where it wants it, instant NATO membership. Putin, in other words, walks away with something that will allow him to posture back in, in Moscow. Is there any parallel with Bonaparte being offered France's, in air quotes, natural borders in 1813? Well, first of all, let me say that I steadfastly uh, disagree with Charles <laughs> on the issue of giving <laughs> Putin anything. Um, I think there is a, um, I have a maybe different kind of uh, vision or maybe con uh, concept of marching on Moscow. Uh, I do believe in confronting Russian aggrandizement. I do believe in supplying Ukraine with weaponry, just as Britain, just as United States uh, has done, have done. Um, and I do believe that the war is, a, is, is, is the way to contain Russian aspirations, not diplomacy. Um, the last 30 years have shown me that when it comes to Russians, diplomacy is, is, is not as effective, especially when from the point of view of small nations like mine, like Ukraine. Ukraine is a population of 40, you know, what, 45 million, so it's rather awkward even to say that it's a small nation. Um, so I, I do, the way I see it is that Russia needs to be confronted here in the months to come. This war will continue. And I see that this war only ending in Russian defeat. It might be uh, not in this month or next month, but um, Russian, the combination of military pressure and the economic pressure will bring down the downfall of Russia. 
at least maybe I'm my 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 maybe uh, optimism is misplaced, but that's how I view it. Um, Alex, my dear fellow, I I I we are actually on the same side. Um, there are times when the only thing worse than having a war is not having a war. This is a war which must be fought and must be won. The only question is, is what the ultimate aim should be. It is not clear to me how far the Ukrainian armed forces, even with all the arms that they're receiving from the West, and arms which they should be receiving, and arms which they should receive more of, and arms which they should receive in a constant flow, it's not clear to me how far they are actually capable of engaging in deep penetration, offensive operations of the sort that would be needed to take back large amounts of territory. I think taking back the territory which the Russians have occupied since the beginning of this awful war might well be a practical possibility and is certainly something that should be fought for. Certainly, I do not think that the Russians should be allowed to have anything other than what they had at the beginning of this war. Yeah, maybe that's. I think maybe we disagree here. I, I don't even. I don't. I don't accept even that. So, um, Russia needs to return the territories that it has taken. Period. I would since February, but since two thousand fourteen. I ideally, I would agree with that. However, I am aware of the huge military effort that would be required to eject them from those territories. We're talking about a massive, massive military effort. We're talking about the need, and God help me, this gives me nightmares. It, it, it distresses me deeply. We're talking about the need to push things to such an extent that the Russians are, as they would see it, provoked into threatening the use of, of, of nuclear weapons. And they are already, Charles, even, even already at this stage, they're threatening it. Um, um, this summer will show us that Ukrainian military is well capable of counteroffensives. That's, that's my view of it. I, I would I would like to agree, I, Alex. I simply don't have access to the detailed information that I would like to make that judgment. This is me being cautious, um, and right, rightfully so. so. And I think this is kind of part of our bantering is is to offer maybe two different viewpoints on on the issue. Um, you are absolutely right to be cautious and 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 to 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 evaluate this. Uh, this, these events in, in a more detached manner, and uh, I have more in maybe more vested interest in in believing that Ukraine is capable of it. Uh, my friends are there. My you know my my my, my country's dependent on it. Uh, so 
um, I, from what I have seen from my conversation with my friends who are on the ground, it seems to me that Ukrainians are capable, well capable of it. And with the deliveries of this new round of, of weaponry, I think we'll see um, a more, more assertive Ukrainian position, military operations maybe in, in the, uh, this summer. Um, again, you're, you're right. This might be just uh, wishful thinking, but we'll see how things turn out. What I, what I certainly do think is that, um, is that, like it or not, NATO will have to be in directly involved militarily, um, particularly with the provision of air power and things like that. I, I think that that is, that is a bullet which is going to have to be bitten do you think, really, uh, because I don't think NATO needs to be directly involved more than it is already uh, by providing this military su uh, support, by pro delivering tanks, by delivering, uh, you, you've seen the uh, anti-aircraft weaponry, anti-tank uh, uh, armament. Um, I, don't I don't see Ukraine needs the direct involvement of NATO. It has the well, manpower, but not the armament. So, so that's, that's where, yeah. Zelensky himself has, has called repeatedly for, um, for, for, for air support. Um, but with regard to the, the types of weaponry being delivered, um, the sort of anti-tank missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, which are being flown in or lorried in or whatever it is, um, they're excellent for defence. They, I mean, they, they really are. I mean, you know, if you think back to, to, to 1973 and, and the, the battles in, in Sinai, I mean, you know, the, the, the Israeli, Israeli tankers go, go charging forward um, in, in heroic fashion and, and there's a whole web of, of Saga missiles waiting for them and lots of them get taken out. Um, yeah, absolutely. Great for defensive warfare. For offensive warfare... You're going to need fleets and main battle tanks. You're going to need air superiority. Um, if the Ukrainians can deliver, I mean, yes, let, let's say that, that Slovakia, Czech Republic, Poland, send all their ex-Soviet tanks. And, and indeed all their ex-Soviet aircraft, stuff which the Ukrainians are, are, are trained to use. Um, it may be that that will provide the Ukrainians with enough material to do the job. And I, I sincerely hope it's the case, and I will see to, to, to nobody when it comes to recognition of the Ukrainian fighting spirit. I mean, you know, we're talking about a modern-day military epic and, um, and one which has left me open-mouthed and completely confounded my fears of what was going to happen back at the beginning. I mean, I thought we were talking about Poland in 1939. And I say that with was no it, disrespect to my friends, the Poles. Interesting so, so use I of the word. Sorry, I, let me just, I hope that these deliveries will be enough. I fear that they might not be um, but, but Alex, American Alex, you clearly have access to material I don't have. And if you think, if you, if you think it will be enough, I, I would be very, very happy to agree. Thank you, Charles. Time will tell, right? Yeah. Well, 
Um, interesting use of the word uh, epic there, Charles, which which we use at the start of the Napoleonic course. So you talk about the epic conflicts of the 1792 to 1815 period, and it's possible that this Ukraine conflict uh, will run, was clearly already run for much longer than, than many would have expected. Um, I think uh, that was a really interesting extended discussion exchange between the two of you on the, the present situation. And it's clear that all of your expertise and thinking about the Napoleonic period translates very easily into considerations of modern warfare in the sense we've heard. But particularly around, you know, I think the immediacy, the immediacy and the urgency of the situation as we see it um, in Ukraine today is um, sort of almost makes it rather hard to, to think about um, the Napoleonic period in that context. But nevertheless, I think one of the big themes that's been uh, drawn out today is that of the perception of threat, um, uh, whether you, that's Russia or, or um, the states around it. Um, and, and I think that may be where we have, as we're out of time, to, to draw a line under this conversation with that general thought. And we did have a comment from David Hollins, for example, who was asking about, um, asking about uh, another state entirely. What was the long-term threat to Austria? As he wondered, was it France? Um, and they had Tugu uh, and the idea that, that that was necessitating Russian support. Or was it Russia and then the Archduke Charles necessitating an accommodation with the short-term threat of Napoleon? I think, um, you know, when we do our regular Napoleonic quarterly episodes, we are immersing ourselves in the situation at the time. But uh, I feel like today we've got a bit, dis uh, you know, sort of naturally, um, because something so gripping is happening right now that, that we find ourselves talking about that uh, much more. But let's, let's have some final thoughts from you both, and then I think it might be time to wrap this special episode of this podcast up. Right. To, to go back to, um, to Dave Hollinson, um, who was the greatest threat to Austria, Napoleon or Alexander I? Alexander I was a statesman who was operating within fairly traditional bounds of statesmanship. He might, he might be more ambitious than some rulers. He was less ambitious than other rulers. But the point is that he was somebody who operated within the contemporary understanding of international relations. In consequence, he, he was somebody who could be conciliated, if you like, assimilated, contained within, accepted as a part of the European system of international relations. That was simply not the case with Napoleon. It took a long time for, 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 for the powers of Europe all to realise that. They, they didn't actually finally grasp that, all of them, until about 1814. But the fact of the matter is that Napoleon could not be conciliated with a civilised system of international relations. This, exactly the same is true of Vladimir Putin. He has put himself beyond the law in the same way that Napoleon did before him. That feels like a really powerful point to make to finish this episode, Alex. <laughs> Let me, uh, par I partly agree with you, Charles, but partly disagree. Um, just finished the book on Kutuzov, 
And Kutuzov, of course, was instrumental in conquering. Uh, thank you, Charles. Uh, for the listeners, uh, Charles is uh, giving me a <laughs> thumbs up. Um, Kutuzov was instrumental in, uh, in the Russo-Turkish, um, Russo-Ottoman War that was raging uh, right on the eve of Franco-Russian confrontation in 1812. And what is, I think, st- uh, surprising to me is that when it came to the relations of, with Ottoman Empire, Alexander was as as bit of uh, roguish, as bit of willing to violate you know, the existing rules, international rules, as Napoleon was. In fact, in 1811, after uh, Kutuzov scores a triumph over Ottomans, it is Kutuzov who is urging the Tsar to moderate the demands and negotiate with the Turks. And Alexander steadfastly, just like Napoleon, refuses to accept moderation and insists on the border on Danube when Kutuzov tells him that this, is a, well, this would be an uh, uh, overextension of Russian power. So I think, um, broadly, I, I, I think you, you have a valid point in that when it came to relations between the great powers inside Europe, Alexander was perfectly willing to work within the certain bounds to accept that political equilibrium, however he defined it. Um, but Napoleon, uh, to, to, a degree, to, to an extent, was the victim of his own success. I would, I would love to see Alexander winning battles like Napoleon did, rampaging across Europe, and then talking about moderation. Because when it came to Wallachia and Moldavia, the little corner of Europe where he was indeed on upswing, he showed no moderation whatsoever. That's a long pause. I was just looking for the unmute button. Um, <laughs> That's why well, I love bantering with you, Charles, uh, is that we can always agree to disagree. <laughs> I, mean, in, I mean, Alex, I'm, I, you know, I, it's not as I have stars in my eyes about Alexander I or any of the other rulers of Europe who weren't called Napoleon Bonaparte. You know, they, they, they were all um, capable of the most ruthless conduct. But in terms of the great power system, and I fear to say that the Ottoman Empire is no, is no more a power, part of the great power system by this point than, oh, to be blunt, the Mughal Empire or somewhere. Um, when it came to international relations within the European great power system, Alexander did play the game. In the same way, you could say that in terms of, if you like, imperial power politics, Britain was utterly ruthless in India. Um, Utterly ruthless with regard to South America. Yes, she was. No two ways about that. But it's in terms, if you like, of the of the narrow circle of European international relations that Napoleon, and it is the circle in which, in which he's operating, given the fact that, that, that France has been squeezed out of the wider world, Napoleon makes himself a, a, a neighbour who is entirely just impossible to live with. Putin has done the same thing. The difference is that Putin is operating in a much 
broader uh, sphere. I mean, he's, he's, he's operating certainly in terms of half the world, if not all the world. I mean, I, I do think that, that, that uh, the Chinese ought to wake up to the fact that Putin is not a nice man that we have having sitting on their northern frontiers. Um, so, so, yes, Alex, I, I mean, I do genuinely take your point, but I think that to expand the argument in the way that you have done is, is, is if in a sense, to miss the point which I am making. But anyway, that's for perhaps for when we come to 1812, we can talk more about this. Ah, yes, uh, much more to come. And uh, yeah, this is the great thing about the dynamic between you two, that um, we think we're reaching agreement and then no, it just slips out of our fingers. And, and, and so the discussion has to continue on another day, as it will with our regular episodes of the Napoleonic Quarterly. We've still got a few more to get 1797 out of the way. Um, before we move on to adventures in Egypt and elsewhere. Um, but I think it'll be really interesting to know what uh, listeners to this podcast made of this episode when um, I, I, I uh, gave uh, Alex and Charles a lo- much longer leash than usual. Um, and, <laughs> and they've certainly, boy, oh boy, taken advantage of it. Here we are. Um, but, but of course, I mean, there's a fascinating uh, exchange uh, to listen to there. Um, some really serious and... Um, heartfelt points being put forward, um, but uh, some, some levity in there as well, which is, which is great. Um, so I think all that remains is for me to um, encourage you all, as I say, to um, uh, express your views on social media, let others know about this uh, podcast project that we're working on. Uh, leave a review if you like, and uh, please do look forward to the next uh, episode as we get back into the swing of things and right back into the midst of a Europe at war in 1797. Until then, uh, from uh, Alex, it's goodbye. Thank you so much, Alex, for uh, you know letting us um, discuss this these matters, and I look forward to our next episode. Um, Charles, get ready. Yeah, um, <laughs> Alex. Alex, I am always ready. Always ready. <laughs> um, but seriously, with regard to today, um, like many, many people, I have been immensely distressed with what's been going on. Um, it, it, is, it is an utter nightmare. And obviously, I, I condemn Vladimir Putin absolutely wholeheartedly. I salute President Zelensky. I salute the Ukrainian people. It's been an honour and a privilege to be able to use this platform to, if you want, to try to get some of the issues in better perspective, in clearer perspective, and possibly, too, to dispel fear. Um, I am reminded, just to to conclude, of the, the first day of the Gulf War back in 1991, um, and a, a young woman um, from Northern Ireland, actually, came into my office at 10 o'clock in the morning, knocks on the door, a girl called Gronje. Morning, Gronje, what can I do for you? Oh, Dr. Esdell, Dr. Esdell, I've, I've really got to talk to you. Why? What's the matter? Well, you're the only person I know who isn't going to be running around screaming that World War Three has broken out. I think 
that kind of adds up to a compliment. It's, you know, 30 years on, I'm not entirely certain, but I think it adds up to a compliment. The point is that in these times of fear, uncertainty, insecurity, we need to speak clearly and with perspective. And that is something which historians can do in a way in which other people can't. Thank you. Thank you all very much.